Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3 beginning in verse 1 and continuing to verse 12. This is God's word. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come now and meet with us by your Spirit. We pray that you would come and give us ears to hear you, give us eyes to see you, and give us hearts to respond in faith and trust in love from having seen you afresh in your word. So come and meet with us now, and we pray this, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our good. Amen. So once again, um, welcome, especially if you're visiting with us uh, this morning. So glad you're here. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here. And we find ourselves this morning in the very last section of verses in a series that we've been going through the last few weeks here in Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to focus this morning on the last four verses here in this passage. And maybe if you were here last week, you remember that um, we focused on one of the most famous and maybe recognizable verses in all of Proverbs in in verses uh, 5 and 6 last week, where we heard these words, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. The writer of Proverbs there is talking about life using the imagery of a road, a path, a a highway that has to be traveled and, and walked. And we use this kind of language all the time. This is, this is still familiar to us. When we come to a difficult decision that we have to make and we're weighing the options, we might say that we've come to a fork in the road and we're trying to figure out which way to go. Or maybe if you're struggling and someone asks you how life is going, you might say, well, I'm just putting one foot in front of the next. That's traveling imagery. That's, a, that's the road metaphor. So Proverbs is assuming here, notice, that that we're all on the way 
somewhere. We're all traveling towards, towards something. We're all on the highway making our way towards some kind of destination. It's not a question of if you're traveling somewhere and keeping your eyes on something in the distance. The question is, what are you traveling to? And what are you looking at as you journey? What's on the horizon ahead of you that's making the travel worth it? That's the question. We're all on the way together, Proverbs is saying. We're all on on the way to some kind of destination. And so in verse 6, the writer gives us the very best advice for the journey, for the highway. He says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. In all of your roads, wherever you are on the highway, whether it feels straight or you don't know what's two feet in front of you, acknowledge him, he says. And that's not just a bare recognition. To acknowledge him in this sense means to keep your eyes on him, to recognize him and his lordship, to listen to his word, to know that he is actually the destination that you're traveling towards, that the straight path is a straight path that he's making to himself. That's the straight path, and we can't trust our own navigational abilities so often. Um, Hebrews 12, uh, the, the writer there says something very similar. It's kind of the New Testament version of this, where the writer says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice that same road and highway imagery. Let us run the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we need wisdom for the road that we're on. We need to be looking at the right thing. And that brings us to verses 9 through 12 this morning to our passage that we're going to focus on uh, here now. In verses 9 through 12, it's like right after telling us, look, you need to acknowledge him in all of your ways, wherever you are on the road, wherever the highway brings you, Look to him. Keep your eyes on him and acknowledge him. It's like right after he says that, he knows that the straight path that God is going to put us on, that as we follow Jesus in this life, the pathway of discipleship, he says that that straight path will lead you through territory that's going to tempt you to take your eyes off of him. The straight path that God puts you on will lead straight into territory that will tempt you to trust in something else. He's telling us here that when God makes straight our paths, often those straight paths lead straight into territory that actually exposes our hearts and exposes what we're really trusting in. The straight path will lead straight into areas and territories and seasons where our hearts will be exposed and what we're really resting in, what we're really hoping in, What we're really keeping our eyes on on the journey will be seen. And that's where the writer of Proverbs takes us in verses 9 through 12. He wants to show us two territories. He simplifies it. He says there's two zip codes. There's two areas on the map that the straight path will always lead through. And just to put it simply, it's these two things, prosperity and adversity. Prosperity and adversity. When life is going great and when life is hard. When life makes sense and when life doesn't make sense. Green pastures and dark valleys. When life is easy and you have everything that you need. And when life is really difficult 
and it feels like God is nowhere to be found. Both of those areas, he's saying, you need a straight path through them. Prosperity and adversity. Now, obviously, we would choose one of those over the other all day long, right? One of them is so much more fun. One of them is so much more enjoyable. But the writer of the Proverbs here, he wants us to see that actually both seasons, both territories, expose and reveal what we're really trusting in, what we're really hoping in. They're both territories that you need to travel on a straight path through because both of these territories want to tell you a different story. They want you to believe in a different story about how the world works and about who you are and about who God is and about what God is doing in your life. And we need a straight path through. We need to believe in the true story through these two territories. So when we trust in the Lord with all our hearts, verse 5, he makes our paths straight, verse 6, and the straight path will lead through seasons of prosperity where the story seems to be that God is for us, verses 9 through 10, and through other seasons where the story seems to be that God is against us, verses 11 and 12. But Proverbs is giving us wisdom that we need to, stri- to stay on the straight path, to, to travel well through these territories so that we don't believe the stories that they're telling us. Proverbs is giving us wisdom, the wisdom of the true story, to stay on the straight path on the race that we're on. So this morning, two points, the the straight path through prosperity and the straight path through adversity. So we'll start with the straight path through prosperity. Notice in verses 9 and 10, he says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, some of you might, might read those two verses and you think, well, I just don't think this applies to me very much this morning. I, I live in Williamson County. I know what real wealth looks like, and that's just not me. Um, or maybe you think, you know, I, I see that word produce. I'm not a farmer. And I, and I don't grow things, um, lettuce and tomatoes and all the other things that you see on the produce aisle at Kroger. And so that feels irrelevant. And then maybe you, you see this language about vats overflowing with wine and you think, I'm not even 21 yet. I can't enjoy it anyway. What's the matter? Or maybe you grew up Baptist and that just sounds like a very bad idea anyway. <laughs> but what we need to see is that actually all of this is relevant for all of us here. That word wealth that he uses is simply a word that refers to your stuff, to your belongings, to anything that you can say that you own, that you have some kind of ownership over. You may think that, you may not think of yourself as wealthy, relatively speaking, but you do have wealth. And look, here's the thing, relatively speaking, yes, we are all pretty wealthy. Right? Relatively speaking, in terms of the rest of the world and the rest of human history, we're, we're all a lot closer to the 1% than we want to think. And that word produce, it doesn't refer to things that you find on the produce aisle at Kroger, lettuce and tomatoes. This word, just, it's, it's the Hebrew word for income, for revenue, for things that you're bringing in, for, for whatever you're producing, the resources that you're generating and whatever's coming to you. So here's the thing, we all have wealth. And we all have produce. 
The writer of Proverbs is assuming that as you journey through life, as you make your way on the journey, as you walk through the path of life, you're going to accumulate stuff. You may accumulate a lot of stuff. You may think that you're not accumulating a lot of stuff, but you're going to accumulate things, possessions, belongings, things that, that you can say that you have some kind of ownership over. But I want you to know something. The writer is not speaking to those with a lot of wealth. He's speaking to those with wealth, which means he's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. He's speaking to anybody with anything. And it's important to realize, too, that this idea of wealth and produce, it doesn't just involve your, your physical, tangible assets. It doesn't just refer to the things that you can touch or, or, or your currency and your money. This is all-inclusive, what he's talking about. He's talking about anything that goes in the column of anything that you can say that you have some kind of ownership over. Any resources, your time, your talents, your abilities, your gifts, things that you've been privileged with, your power, your ability to influence, all of those things go in the column of your wealth and resources. And here's the thing. All of those things are in view here because all of them can tempt you to take your trust off of God and to trust into them. All of them can become substitutes, can become idols, can become your functional saviors. Anything that goes in the column of, of what you own can turn into, very quickly, something that you're hoping and trusting in. The writer of the Proverbs knows, the writer of Proverbs, he knows that it's hard to have things without those things having you. It's hard to have prosperity without prosperity having you. So what does it look like? What is a straight path through prosperity, through having things? What does it look like? Well, notice that the only command, the only instruction that he gives us in these two verses here is the very first word, honor. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth. And that Hebrew word honor, it's a word that means to recognize something as, as heavy and as weighty. We actually get our word glory from this word. Um, it means to recognize something as having real substance, as being dense with meaning and significance and value. It, it means to recognize something as supremely significant. To honor something means to recognize something as the center of gravity around which everything else orbits. Think of it like this. Modern physics has helped us to understand how the how the force of gravity works. I mean, ever since the creation of humanity, people have known that when you drop something, it tends to fall. But we didn't really know why um, until, you know, the last few hundred years when we, when we connected that the more mass and weight an object has, the heavier it is, the more of a gravitational force it exerts on other things, right? And so the heavier an object is, the more mass it has, it's going to attract things to it. And, and lighter things tend to be attracted to heavier things. That's why, you're, that's why you're sitting in the pews right now and not flying all over the room, because the earth is heavier than you are. Um, but that's also why the earth is orbiting around the sun right now, because the sun is heavier 
than the earth is. It's this law that God has built into the very fabric of the universe, how it works, how it's wired. Lighter objects are going to be attracted to and orbit around heavier objects. Here's the thing. God has made our hearts to operate according to a very similar law. He's wired us this way. He's he's built us this way. But we don't call it the law of gravity. We call it we call it worship. Whether you realize it or not, whether you recognize that you're doing it or not, you are going to recognize something as ultimately valuable, something as truly significant. Something is going to occupy that place as the center of gravity in your life. If your life and your resources and your world and everything that you own is like a solar system, it's going to revolve around something. It's not a question of if you're going to honor something like this. It's a question of what you're already honoring. Something is going to matter the most. Something is going to be that treasure that you treasure above all else that you work for and live for and sacrifice for and give for. And again, it's not a question of if. It's a question of what it is. Because whatever it is, that's what you're trusting in. Whatever that is, whatever you put your trust in, whatever you value the most, you're honoring, you're you're orbiting around it, and you're you're putting your trust in it that it's going to keep you safe, that it's going to keep you safe from whatever you're afraid of. And we're all afraid of different things, but they tend to come down into into the same kind of things. We're afraid of being disappointed. We're afraid of being heartbroken. We're afraid of being a nobody. We're afraid of being lonely, of being insignificant, or of being mediocre. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid we're not going to be able to handle it when it comes. And so there's something that's going to keep that from happening. And whatever it is, that's what you're trusting in. Proverbs knows that when our path goes through prosperity, that when we have wealth of any kind, when we own anything, whatever that looks like, that means that our path is going through territory that's filled with all kinds of things that our hearts are going to be tempted to hold on to and to hang on to tighter than anything else. Proverbs knows that when our path goes through prosperity, that the problem isn't the prosperity. The problem is how much we love it. The problem is how much we want it. The problem is how much, well, how easily we trust in it. The problem is how deeply we believe that having enough and getting more is going to solve our problems and that it's going to keep us safe. The problem isn't when we have prosperity. The problem is when prosperity has us. And that's why his first word and the only piece of advice, the only direction that he gives us here on this stretch of highway through prosperity is honor the Lord with your wealth. Recognize him as that thing of supreme importance around which everything else is orbiting. All of your gifts, all of the things that you have. He says, be thankful for the gifts, yes, but love the giver. Remember the true story, that it actually all belongs to him anyway. 
Immerse yourself minute by minute in the true story that everything that you own, you actually don't own, and you're not going to own it for very long anyway. And put that true story into practice by letting go of it. This word of, or the, this language of, of giving him the first fruits, you might read that and you, and you might think, well, okay, God only wants a little bit of what I have. He wants me to give this much and I get to keep this much. But that language in the Old Testament, it actually, it's a way that God pressed into his people's hearts in a, on a regular basis that actually everything that we have belongs to him. He just lets us keep a little bit. The first fruits was a, was a picture of everything else that was coming. It represented, the first fruits of the harvest represented the rest of the harvest. And so when God asked for the first fruits, what he meant was, it's all mine. You're just going to steward and keep and put into practice and love me and serve me with what I'm letting you keep. That's the true story. That's the, tr- the straight path through prosperity to appreciate and to be thankful for the gifts, but to only trust in the giver. Notice one more thing here. Notice what verse 10 says can often happen as a result. He says, that when, he says then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, maybe you latched on to that this morning. <laughs> maybe you latched on to that and you thought, you know, that sounds like a biblical get-rich-quick scheme. Okay, what God is saying is if I, can, if I just honor him with it, if I give him a little bit, he's going to give me a lot. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Um, but this is not an investment strategy. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. He's not saying do this and God's going to give you the American dream. He's saying... Um, He's saying something more like this. He's saying that when we begin to love and to treasure and to value God above all else, then we, then we turn into people that maybe he can trust with a little bit more because he knows it won't ruin us, because he knows it won't immediately turn into something that will take our hearts off of him and that we'll start to orbit around instead of him. But I also think he's, he's saying something, something else. I think he's saying something along the lines of when you recognize God as the true treasure and, and when you recognize everything that you have, tangible, intangible, anything that you can say that you own, when you recognize all of that as pure gift, as pure undeserved grace, that you actually didn't deserve. The minute that that true story starts to latch on in your heart, it's almost like you turn around and you look at your barn that you thought was was pretty empty before, but now it looks a whole lot more full than it should be. Because now everything that you own, even when it's not as much as the other guy, it's so much more than you deserve. I think that's what he's saying here. And this language, notice this language of, of, of vats that are bursting with wine. That's the language, y'all, of, 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 of joy and abundance. It's the language of, of joyful celebration and feasting. Anytime in the Bible that you see wine of this magnitude, it means there's a big party going on. 
a lot of joy, a lot of celebration, and a lot of feasting. And notice that he's saying that that kind of joy that's permanent and overflowing and stable and that doesn't fluctuate with your circumstances, that kind of deep abiding joy is available to you, but it's not available in the stuff that that God gives you. It's available in God himself, no matter what he gives you. Proverbs is saying that that's where true joy is to be found. That's the straight path through prosperity. Now, this idea of of deep, lasting joy, joy that doesn't fluctuate, we're we're talking just now about our joy in God. And that that's the straight path through prosperity. But I want you to think about something else. Because this, this idea of deep abiding joy and delight, it actually serves as a good segue into our second point. Because it's tempting, isn't it, to think that the good life or having lots of wealth or those seasons when it's green pastures and everything makes sense and life is easy, it's tempting, isn't it, to connect those seasons with God's pleasure in us. It's tempting to think that God's joy in me is evidenced when life is going great, when when everything makes sense and life is easy, those times of wealth and prosperity. But notice that the writer of Proverbs, he actually doesn't connect the good life with God's pleasure or with God's joy. The Bible actually doesn't let us do that. Um, sometimes we want to think that, that, that that's the true story. That the good life and an easy life, prosperity, that, that's evidence of God being happy with you. But you know, the Bible actually never lets us go too far with that. It always says, wait a minute, hold up. It's not that simple. Just read the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, all of those books that contain real, honest lament and protest when God's people look out at the world and the wicked seem to be prospering and the unrighteous seem to be forgotten. The writer of Proverbs, you'll notice, he doesn't say that prosperity is necessarily evidence of God's pleasure and delight in us. He actually says that something else is. He says it's not the times and the seasons when everything's easy, but it's actually the times when life is hard, when it's difficult, when it doesn't feel like God is for you. The writer of Proverbs connects those seasons with God's delight in you, with God's joy in you. Now, we've just unpacked verses 9 and 10 to look at the the straight path through prosperity. And now we come to verses 11 and 12 to see a straight path through adversity. Now Proverbs brings us to that other territory that we want to avoid, but that we can't. And it's this territory where the struggle isn't to trust God, that God is good in the midst of all the other good things. Here the struggle is to trust God in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain. You see, in seasons of prosperity, the the real struggle is to believe that God is the supreme good amidst all the other good things. 
But here in adversity, our hearts struggle to believe that God is good at all. He writes in verse 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The Bible never promises that God's love will inevitably lead to your comfort and ease and prosperity, but the Bible does promise that God's love will lead to your sanctification, to that loving, lifelong process of God conforming you more and more into His image. The Bible does promise that God's love will lead to that lifelong process of God preparing you to share in His glory as someone who's been remade into His, into his image. This divine reconstruction project that was started by His love and that continues by His love. And the Bible is always honest about what that process will feel like. That it hurts. It can hurt to be made ready for heaven. This process that is fueled by God's delight in you can often involve periods of loss and pain and trial and heartbreak that feel anything like God's delight in you. The Father's love for His children will lead to circumstances when those same children will be tempted to doubt if their Father really loves them. And He's being honest about that. The words that Proverbs uses here are the words discipline and reproof. Now, it's possible that you hear those words and maybe, I don't know, but maybe you engage and experience those words in, in a purely negative way. It, it might mean that those, those words might have some baggage with you. I don't know. But it may be that you experience them negatively, and it just sounds harsh and overbearing, and it sounds too much like anger and punishment and wrath. Maybe you instantly associate these words without even trying to with memories of being, you know, paddled, <laughs> sent to your room, getting chewed out by a coach or a parent, and all the ways that discipline might have been enacted poorly. Or maybe verses 11 and 12 sounds like this to you. Maybe you read these verses to sound like this. When you screw up and fail and disobey, and God get, gets mad at you, and He punishes you, and He makes life miserable to get even with you, just grin and bear it, put a smile on, and know that it hurts Him even more than it does you. But that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying because, first of all, God, if God ever wanted to get even with you, you wouldn't survive it. God has never gotten even with you, ever. Um, as a Christian, the one thing that you don't have to fear is God getting even with you because he's already even with you. On the cross, God got even with you. And his anger... His punishment, His wrath is something that you will never experience. You've never experienced that. But something that you will experience and that you will continue to experience is, is His discipline, His fatherhood, His lifelong loving process of training and forming and shaping and correcting and leading you to look more like Him. And the truth is that... There's not a minute in this life that you don't need it. 
But that's why we despise it. That's why we get weary of it because we, we reach periods where we think, God, I'm good. Just let off. I'm fine. I look enough like you for you to just leave me alone for a little bit. That's why we can despise it or become weary of it because we don't think it's necessary. And you know, if I was writing the story, if I was writing the handbook on sanctification, here's how I would design the process to work. I would write it so that ease and comfort make me more like Jesus. That sounds like a better deal to me. I would write it so that when life is going my way and when relationships are easy, when being a husband is coming easy and being a father is making sense, when everything's going great, that's when I'm growing spiritually. That's when I'm really taking off spiritually. But you know, it never seems to work like that, does it? That's why God didn't let me write the manual. Um, Everything would be really messed up. You see, God has designed this process of sanctification to work this way because the end goal, the end of the road of sharing His glory and looking like Him and being conformed to His image, that end destination is so much more glorious than you can possibly imagine. And the way that we come into this world falling short of that glory, the way that we naturally come into this world is far more serious than we want to imagine. And so he knows that in view of who we naturally are and in view of who he's making us to become, the process is going to hurt. The process may involve such loss and disappointment and grief that we might wonder how this can possibly come from the hands of a loving father. In other words, we're going to be tempted to despise it and to become weary of it because we're going to be tempted to to believe a different story that adversity can tell us. When our straight path leads through adversity, we're going to be tempted to doubt that God can possibly be good in the midst of these situations and this circumstance that is anything but good. The story that adversity wants us to believe is that God is not at work here, that God doesn't touch the mess, he doesn't get his hands dirty in the complicated, messy, broken parts of our lives and our story. That's where God's not at work, that pain and suffering are evidence of God's indifference and his absence, not evidence of his love and presence. That's what it means to despise his discipline, to be weary of it, to believe a different story other than the true story. One Puritan writer said that without the gospel, every trial becomes a double trial. Because not only are you engaging with the trial itself, but you're also underneath it all asking the question, does God hate me? Is God really for me in this? Now notice when Proverbs, when he says not to be weary of the discipline and the reproof and not to despise it, notice that that's not saying that you need to enjoy it. He's not saying you need to just put a smile on your face and act like everything's okay. We're really good at doing that. He's not saying that, though. And we actually don't need to be as good at doing that. Proverbs is saying this. He's, He's not saying you need to enjoy it. He's saying you need to not lose heart. He's saying you need to not give up 
He's saying don't misinterpret the trial as evidence of God's displeasure or as evidence of God's um, lack of delight in you. That means that in the midst of trial and suffering, brothers and sisters, and you might be there right now, God might, might have led you there on the straight path and you might have just stumbled your way into worship this morning. And you need to know that the posture of true faith, traveling the highway through, through adversity, the posture of true faith is to be able to say, God, this hurts. Father, I don't like this. And I don't understand, and I, and I want it to end, and I don't see a way through, but I trust you. And I don't have the answers, but I think that you do. And I don't know how this is going to end, but I trust you, and I love you. Help me. C.S. Lewis says it like this in his book, The Problem of Pain. This is a long quote. Bear with me, but this is a paraphrase. He says that we are, not metaphorically, but in real truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. If an artist made a quick sketch to amuse a child, he wouldn't trouble over it too much. But if the artist were making the greatest picture of his life, a work that he loves with all of his heart, he would trouble, he would trouble endlessly over it. And if that picture could feel, if that picture were, were conscious and aware, that picture would doubtless feel endlessly troubled by that process. You can imagine if, if the picture could feel that after it had been rubbed and scraped over hundreds of times, it would just wish that it was a, merely a sketch. And in the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious destiny. But then we're not wishing for more love, but for less. I love that imagery. That you are God's workmanship. That you are that divine work of art that's actually more like a self-portrait of God himself. Because he's turning you into something that's going to look like Jesus. He's forming and shaping you into his image to look like him and that process on this side of heaven can hurt. And as painful as it may be, as Hebrews tells us, discipline in the moment, it seems painful rather than pleasant. Just be honest. You're not going to like it. But that process, he's reminding us, is fueled by God's delight in you. Fueled by his joy in you fueled by his fatherly affection. The straight path through adversity, the straight path through when life hurts is to believe that you are the child of a heavenly father who cannot abandon you. It's to trust that behind a frowning providence, he always hides a smiling face. It doesn't mean that you have to delight in the trial, but it means trusting that you have your Father's delight in the trial. And it doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy the pain. It means that you are the object of your Father's joy in the pain. We need what, um, what a local, I think she's local, Christian um, artist says, 
the kind of patience that will trust the slow, steady work of God beneath the surface, working for our good. That is the pathway through adversity. And to close, just to remind you of how the writer of the Hebrews says this. He says, let us run with endurance. Stay on the straight path with endurance. The race that's set before us, how? Looking to Jesus, the author and the founder of our faith. And how did he run his race? How did he stay on the path before him? He was looking at the joy that was set before him. And for that joy, he endured the cross. Because of Jesus' joy in you, he has endured a trial that you will never endure. The trial of really knowing the Father's abandonment in his suffering. He kept his eyes on the joy in front of him. So that as you journey, whether through prosperity or adversity, you can know for a fact that you have his smile, that he's delighting in you right now, and that he's bringing you safely home. May we keep our eyes on him as we continue to journey down the straight path towards him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would come and strengthen our weary hearts and and strengthen our weak knees for the journey. You know how, how easy it is for us to believe different stories about what's true. You know how hard it is for us to keep our eyes on you on a, a road that's so perilous and that's holding out good things for us to trust in or that holds out bad things that tempt us to, to believe that you're not good. But, oh God, we need the grace that you give in abundance and that you've promised to supply us with, the grace to hold on to you even as you hold on to us. Please give us that, we pray, in new and fresh ways as we follow you from this moment on. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.